high, as in I'm high. <laughs> That's actually a joke, kind of. Uh, if you were watching the show last night, thank you. But also, I told you I broke my foot over the weekend. So today was the day they fixed it and put a cast on it. And I don't know if you've ever had a broken bone before, but it is a, it's a not a fun thing that happens because they go to put it back together. And you kind of have to be high for that. So I am just warning you in TV land uh, that that's who you're getting, is me, because I will not take a day off work. I just love you that much. Um, and I'm going to talk about some cases that require uh, having some knowledge about being high. And I will tell you about that in a moment, but I thought that would be a good tease. The first case, though, that I want to tell you about is, uh, here we go again, it's, it's Alex Murdoch. The dude just cannot stay out of court. Uh, this time, he got more years behind bars, and it had nothing to do with murder. So if you are following the bouncing ball on the Alex Murdoch trial or the length of his hair, because it is always different, it grows, he shaves it in jail, then, he, I mean, today he definitely looked really different. Um, today he had to face some of the people he ripped off because he stole so much money from so many people. And some of those people were people that, like, loved him. And maybe once upon a time he loved them back. Uh, but today, I don't think there was a whole lot of love lost between them because he had to face them as they ripped him a new one. So guess what? I have the tape, and I'm going to play some of these things for you. But then I'm going to get super real on it with one of um, Alex Murdoch's like, oldest, dearest friends from when he was growing up, a guy named Jordan Jinx, because Jordan was one of the guys Murdoch ripped off. And Jordan was one of the guys who was in that courtroom today. So I'm going to talk to him about what this was like going through it today, uh, what he sees when he looks at Murdoch now, and how he feels about you know the number of years that uh, were just tacked on to Murdoch's sentence, I'll tell you that one too. Then the, the next thing is the thing I talk, talked about at the top of the show, being high. I'm not really high right now. I mean, it's really worn off, I'm pretty sure. You can check me on it later. But uh, the, 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 the story in California of the, the young woman who stabbed her boyfriend 108 times and then said it was because she was so high, she didn't know what she was doing. It was like a... Um, well, it was, like a, it was like a psychosis, right? That's what she looked like when she got her mugshot because she also stabbed herself. Uh, you can see the marks there. And she stabbed her dog, too, beloved dog. And the prosecutors really bought into it, too, because they reduced the murder charge. And there's her boyfriend, Chad Omelia, totally innocent, dead. He doesn't get to come back and talk about what happened that night. But... Bryn Spacher actually took the stand today. How would you like to be a juror and hear her explain to you from her own cake hole uh, what she thinks about the whole thing and why she shouldn't be held responsible for that, for that murder? I mean, wow. Imagine being his family members, listening to it in court. Chad's father, Sean, is going to join me on the show tonight and um, tell me a little bit about what it was like. That testimony uh, Bryn just wrapped up in California. So this is first reaction exclusive, and we'll hear what it's like uh, to have to face that down in, in court when you're missing your son. Then there's this story. Um, well, it started at a middle school. Let's just start there. And it involved someone who, you know, is young enough to be in that middle school and decided to rip off a forklift. 
Have you ever seen a high-speed chase that can't really go very high-speed when there's a 12-year-old behind the wheel of the forklift? Just start counting how many cars he's sideswiping. Because uh, there's another one. There's another one. Um, I have the final tally. I also have the length of time that this chase went on and the number of detachments that had to actually get involved. Here's a hint. He was 12. Driver was 12. And the number of vehicles, not 12. Okay, so that's coming up um, on the program. Let's, uh, let's get right to it. I can't keep track at this point of how many times I have said this, but Alex Murdoch was back in a courtroom today. Uh, it was not about the murders of his wife and his son. He is spending his you know, natural life in prison for that one, unless, of course, his appeal goes well. Uh, we're kind of in it, but not really. But take a look. This is the, the freshest, newest, shake his hand. Uh, this is the freshest look of Alex as he went into court. This time it was not murder. This time uh, the courtroom was booked for money, money crimes. And since he pleaded guilty to all of the money crimes, today uh, was a day to announce how much more time he's going to spend behind bars for the money crimes. And the magic number ended up being 27. So in keeping track of all of this, he committed a whole whack of financial crimes, almost two dozen of them, everything from money laundering and forgery to tax evasion. And they were all committed by bilking more than 12 million out of the government. Uh, but not just the anonymous government, because some people might say that's easier to do because it doesn't have a face. He also robbed former clients at his law firm, people with faces that he knew. And he also robbed his former colleagues at the firm. So uh, today, though, was special because unlike at his first trial, some of Alex Murdoch's victims actually had the opportunity to face Alex directly in court. Look at that, like mm, right into his eyes. They could tell him off. Tell him exactly what he did to them. Tell him exactly what he stole from them. How he hurt them. And the people who were there today were all very familiar to him because they included the family of his longtime housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield. He ripped them off for $3.8 million. You remember that? Also a man named uh, Jordan Jinx. Murdoch's known Jordan since childhood. And yet, he fleeced Jordan for $150,000. So imagine this moment that Jordan got a chance to get behind the mic and give Alex Murdoch a piece of his mind. You do not have to imagine it, because I have it right here. You can hear for yourself. Take a listen. You lied. You cheated. You stole. Um, you betrayed me and my family and everybody else. And you did it at a cost of my mom's death. I want you to know that I forgive you. Um, I will pray for you every day. Um, that God gets a hold of your heart. When all this came about, Paul, Paul, and Maggie, I couldn't believe it. I didn't believe it. But after sitting here today and hearing some of the devious things that you did to people, these victims here, changed my mind, bro. Once again, I ask you, what kind of animal are you? Boy, I gave you my all. I would do, the money you stole from me, you could have asked me for it, and I would have gave it to you if that's how I felt about you and your family. 
So Jordan's going to join me uh, for an exclusive conversation in just a bit. But you also, we, we sort of spliced two of those victims together. Tony Satterfield was another one of them. He was the guy whose mother died. And, um, you know, there was Alex. He was supposed to be looking after uh, his housekeeper's kids, right? Representing them and getting them a settlement. Instead, he just ripped them off. So you got to see both of them there. So Murdoch also, for his part, had an opportunity to speak as well. And he seemed to blame his drug addiction for everything that he did. Take a look at this. I want all of each of you that spoke uh, to know that I listened to you. I heard you. Your pain and your hurt is palpable. I get it. It's reasonable. And I promise you that it resonates with me. I understand it. I hope that the time will come when you can look back and know that despite the things that I did, that I care about each one of you. Because I do. After hours, days, weeks, months of self-reflection, I know now that I took more and more and more pills because I was hiding or attempting to hide from the reality of the things that I was doing to all of you. I do care about each of you. I have I have special recollections of my interactions with each one of you outside of the terrible things that I did. What do you think? I don't see any tears. I don't see all the business coming out of his nose like he did at the murder trial. And frankly, that guy is such an exquisite liar. I'm not even sure I can stomach hearing how sad he is, sorry he is, about ripping everybody off, people who trusted him and loved him, friends, people he was supposed to be caring for. He's like a Madoff, right? He's like a Bernie Madoff. Uh, he went on to address everybody individually, for whatever that's worth, regardless of uh, remorse or whatever happens with the double murder conviction. Um, he's trying to get that overturned, though. He is going to be locked up on these charges until he's 78 years old, or maybe 82 years old if he serves out the whole sentence. And he has another sentence pending on a couple dozen federal charges. He's pleaded guilty to those ones, too, back in September. Uh, News Nation's national correspondent Alex Capriello has all the details. He joins me now live. That was quite a performance in there by Alex Murdoch, Alex Capriello. You're the, you're the good Alex. Um, so <laughs> the prosecution got exactly what they asked for, right? 27 years? Yeah, this was the negotiated plea deal that all came with it, right? Alex Murdoch pleaded guilty to all of these financial crimes. And in return, he gets 27 years in prison. If he does well in prison, uh, he's only required to serve about 85% of that. So that would be roughly 22, 23 years. 
But this is exactly what the prosecutors were asking for. This is exactly what the defense agreed to. It's what Alex Murdoch agreed to. He said that within two weeks of getting this plea deal, the first plea deal that he was offered, he accepted it. Uh, obviously, there's still a lot of legal trouble ahead for him. But at the same time, at least this part is over. So here's the thing I couldn't quite figure out, and I'm not sure anybody could figure out. I know we've all been trying to figure this one out, the team, you, me. It, it, maybe it's just Alex Murdoch has terrible syntax. But he made this comment in court today, and it almost sounded like he was suggesting because he committed these financial crimes, it gave SLED the perfect opportunity to focus only on him about the murders. I'm going to play it. And then I'm going to get your uh, take on on what he said. But I just thought it was word salad. So here it is. Take a listen. I know that the things that I did that I'm pleading guilty here today allowed SLED and the Attorney General's office to focus on me and not to pursue... the person or the people who hurt and killed Maggie and Papa. Oh, okay. Alex Capriola, what did all that mean? Gosh, your guess is as good as mine. Honestly, uh, I was surprised that they gave him a microphone for 50 minutes straight. They said it was going to be a five-minute speech, but it ended up almost being an hour. And I think uh, word salad is a great way to put it. He just kind of was all over the place with his thoughts. My best interpretation is the one that you just provided, which was that they felt uh, Alex Murdoch feels as if uh, these financial crimes made him the main suspect for the murder of his wife and son. And to this day, even during this long monologue, he still is claiming that he is not responsible for their deaths, uh, looking at these victims and saying, I need you to understand and know that I would never hurt Maggie and Paul. So I guess this is him saying, look, now that this is over, now that I plead guilty to these financial crimes, I'm hopeful that SLED which is the investigative agency in South Carolina, can now maybe do more due diligence into the deaths of my wife and son, maybe find their actual killer, because to this day, he's still claiming that it was not him. But yeah, to your point, it really just seemed incoherent at times, uh, very rambly with his thoughts just everywhere. That's what it felt like. And again, I, you know, whenever somebody says, Sorry, I, I tend to, my, my heart gets all soft and fuzzy, but not this time. I'm sorry about that. Alex Capriello, great work. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ashley. Alex Capriello reporting for us tonight. Joining me now is Jordan Jinx. Jordan is a long time, lifelong really, friend of Alex Murdoch, who was fleeced out of $150,000. And he, as you saw earlier, uh, spoke in the courtroom today. Mr. Jinx, thank you for being on. I'm so sorry that you were a victim of your old friend. I'm so sorry you've had to live through all of this. Obviously, even losing um, the, the Murdoch family members who were murdered has, has got to be painful because you were, you were close to them. Tell me how you, you made it through this today. What were, your, what were your feelings and thoughts as you were able to face him and tell him, you know, tell him what you wanted to say? Thank you, Ms. Benfield, for having me. Um, I didn't clearly get what I wanted to say over.
because I got kind of emotional. But I'm still in shock, still in disbelief that he did it, that he did it to me personally because of the background that we have. I mean, we share some intimate things. When I say intimate, I want everyone to understand. I mean, we share some personal things that we probably wouldn't have shared with anybody else that wasn't family, blood. But I grew up without a brother, and I made that bond with him, and I felt like he was that brother I never had. Well, it's got to be just, you know, doubly heartbreaking then to, to, have, to have to face him and say these things. What I, what I found incredible about you, Mr. Jenks, is that you originally believed Alex was innocent of the murders of Maggie and Paul and that things changed for you today. Tell me about that. I felt like this in the beginning because... I really know him. When I say I know Alex, I'm I'm not his wife, I'm not his blood brother, but I shared some some moments with him that I always had a feeling that he was a loving, caring person to Maggie, Paul, and Buster. I, I didn't I didn't want to believe that he would harm either one of the three. But after hearing him being so vicious and heartless about money and and taking money from victims that died and left their families with what was coming to them, and he just took it without a thought. It took all of it. it just made me feel different about him. Yeah, it, it, it makes you see into a man's soul and see differently. Have you, by the way, had a chance to talk yes. with Buster, his surviving son? Have you, have you had a chance to reach out to him at all? I have not. Um, I'm sure you've been on top of every case in every court hearing there was. If you notice, I wasn't there at either uh, court hearings because I didn't want to deal with it. I, I wanted to wait until this moment that I could actually speak to Alex. I didn't want to speak to Buster or anyone else about it. I, I needed to speak to him. So no, I have not. Do you plan to in the in the future? Speak to Buster? Yeah. The the question is do I plan to speak to Buster? I will. Correct. I mean it's it's not it's not on my list to find him to speak to him, but if I cross him, I would ask for a conversation. I would engage. Mr. Jinx, again, I'm sorry that you have been... Exactly. I mean, I'm sorry that you've had to to go through all this and that you lost not only your your lifelong friend, um, the family members who were friends with with you as well, but then all of the... the, just the thievery, um, your your 
personal losses that you've gone through. Um, I pray for you and the other victims, and I'm so thankful that you were here to share this with us. Thank you, Mr. Jenks. Thank you for having me. Jordan Jenks joining us live tonight, another victim of Alex Murdoch. Still to come, first-degree murder is the top dog of criminal charges, and it's usually reserved for the worst of the worst, right? But tonight, two kids are accused of first-degree murder, and they are out there running wild somewhere, both of them accused of gunning down innocent victims in cold blood. They have both escaped a juvenile lockup and have been on the run for three days now. So why haven't the grown-up cops figured out how to outsmart the teenagers yet? Wait until you hear the extraordinary violence that one of these boys is accused of committing at the ripe young age of 15. Manhunt, teen hunt in Louisiana after the break. I was debating a little bit um, how much I was going to share with you, but since we've actually known each other a while, we're kind of friends now, um, and I'm sure you're wondering, well, she seems fine, you know, her hair is fancy and her makeup is good. She can't have gone through all that hell today. Uh, so I thought I would actually show you what I did to my foot this weekend. Because um, when I got the x-ray, the, the girl that was doing it, she said, oh, that's a bad one. And you never want to hear that. So look, first there's the black cast that I got on. It's a black cast, which is cool. But way over on the right there, the metatarsal on the far right, it's not supposed to look like that. That is a broken metatarsal. And like I knew right away when the, when the lady who was taking the, the x-ray said, oh, yikes, oh, that's not good. So... I'm hobbling around for like a couple of weeks now. I'm not allowed to put any weight on that, that cast. And you just try jumping around on one leg. Uh, it's, it's not fun. Not fun. So uh, we're just going to keep moving along with the show. And uh, just know that some doctor actually went and put those bones back together. <laughs> so I have had a day. It is not fun to do that. Speaking of day, day turns into night, you know, and for most 17-year-olds, this might be considered bedtime, you know, what with it being a school night, um, maybe they got sports tomorrow, maybe a long day, uh, after-school job, so 10.30 Eastern, yes, that's a, probably a good time for a 17-year-old to hit the sack, uh, but for David Atkins and Willie Jackson, it is not bedtime. It is not even clear if his mother or father know where these two are tonight, or if any families know where these two are tonight. They have been on the run. Now four days and counting, trying to outsmart the cops and the sheriffs and the U.S. Marshals, hunting for them. Yes, manhunt for 17-year-old kids. That just took a turn, didn't it? Uh, these two 17-year-olds are fugitives from the law. They broke out of their juvenile facility in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where they were being held on first-degree murder charges. It's hard to say, 17-year-olds, first-degree murder charges. David Atkins and Willie Jackson are not your typical 17-year-old kids, though. They are first-degree murder suspects, and they are jailbreakers, and one of them, David Atkins, that's the one on the left with the dark sweatshirt, that guy, he has practiced at the art, having escaped from the juvenile facility twice in as many weeks. When he broke out the first time on November 14th, he and another inmate made a break for it, but they were recaptured in less than a day. In this latest jailbreak, though, he and his newest partner in crime, Willie Jackson, they busted out at 8.30 p.m. Saturday night, reportedly found an unlocked door and made their way to the roof, and poof, gone. Neither has been seen or heard from since. 
And as troubling as it is to talk about any kid facing first-degree murder at uh, age 17, David Atkins, again, one on the left, was 15, 15 when he allegedly committed his crimes. This is how the police described the violence. They say uh, Atkins took out a handgun, opened fire on three people that he was talking to at a convenience store. Um, it was August 2021, day after Hurricane Ida devastated parts of Louisiana. One of the three people that he allegedly shot at died in the hospital a couple days later. Another victim survived the gunshots. And a third, it seems, got lucky. Bullets missed her. As for the aging and understaffed detention center where David Atkins was taken and has been awaiting his trial, local officials had earmarked $3.5 million for security upgrades long before Atkins ever set foot in the place. And reportedly that money got stuck in bureaucratic bottlenecks and was never spent. My next guest believes that what's really needed is a brand new detention center altogether before this happens again and again and again and again. And maybe once they get Atkins back in it, they might be able to keep him. Daryl Hurst is a council member for the city of Baton Rouge and the parish of East Baton Rouge. He formed a task force last month to dig into this very issue. Hey, Mr. Hurst, this is astounding. Thank you, by the way, for, for coming on tonight. What is the latest on the hunt for these two kids at day four? What do you know? Well, as of now, they have not been filed. And, and I, I do want to make something clear. I, I, first of all, victims' families are extremely important, and my heart goes out. Um, but what I do want to know, these are kids, and they're innocent until proven guilty, not guilty until proven innocent. So we do want to do that. Well, we, what we want to do is get them into safety, make sure that we put them in a place where they won't break out and they can be properly rehabilitated so when they are released to the general public, there are better when they left and they did when they came in. And so that's what this task force is all about. If that happens, though, right? Because I think the DA, at least in Atkins' case, wants to raise him to adult court, which could mean life in prison. Um, you know, and that, that means it's not about rehabilitation and a, and a great life once they get out. We had, we had a similar issue about a year ago when they were putting 20-year-olds in uh, to be considered as, as juveniles in facilities with 12-year-olds. So I disagree with that the same way I disagree with putting a 17-year-old in a facility with a 60-year-old uh, and asking for rehabilitation. So, uh, again, they're innocent until proven guilty at this point. It's about building this task force. It's about uh, we have a tour actually set up next Wednesday to take the task force, about 14 members, judges, uh, the, t- the detention center manager, the warden for our, our jail as well, along with some council members, citizens, and our uh, Chamber of Commerce to come in there, see what the challenges are that are currently from a physical standpoint to determine what we need to do to make it better. And then the follow-up is that we'll be going to another facility that is up to par to show where we are versus where we could be and start planning to move forward to uh, remedy that by hopefully demolishing this facility and bringing another one uh, to fruition. Well, the last time uh, Atkins was out, he was recaptured at a house because uh, the, the police said a tip came in. So let's hope that that happens again. Um, I know they're innocent and ill-proven guilty, but the police are saying they're armed and they're dangerous. And if they are guilty of these crimes, they're excruciatingly dangerous because first-degree murder, let's just hope no one else ends up um, being hurt. Daryl Hurst, thanks so much for being on. Really appreciate this. Thank you for having me. I also want to let our viewers know that Crime Stoppers, uh, Crime Stoppers is offering a $2,000 reward. 
for anybody who has information leading to the capture of David Atkins or Willie Jackson. So if you see either of these kids, um, call 911 or call Crime Stoppers. There's the number on your screen. Take a quick picture of it. 344-STOP. That's uh, 344-7867. An area code 225. Want to get them off the streets for sure and into a courtroom. Coming up, I want you to try to imagine what it must be like to rebuild your world after an utterly life-shattering trauma. And now imagine you're at the age when your life is already a mystery and everything's hard. And now imagine the darkest and cruelest corners of the internet are watching your every move and spewing their venom. Because that is what Dylan Mortensen is facing one year after four of her housemates were slaughtered near the University of Idaho campus. I'm gonna show you what Dylan has been up against and how her supporters are trying to have the last word against a sea of very cruel trolls. That's next. Been a little over a full year since four innocent students were slaughtered while sleeping in their home just off campus at the University of Idaho. Uh, Before last November, we had heard the names, uh, we never heard the names, Ethan Chapin, Maddie Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Kayla Gonzalez, but it really feels like now uh, they and their families uh, are almost like our own family because we've watched them go through so much agony in the quest for justice. And tonight, I am sorry to report that there is yet another notch in the agony belt. Um, one of the two roommates who survived the massacre in the house that night, Dylan Mortensen, has again been targeted by online bullies. That's right, a survivor of a quadruple murder, a student who lost four friends in the most ghastly way possible, is being victimized all over again. Um, That's Dylan there. And there she is, better days with the friends. That's her on the far left. Remember that familiar photo of the housemates? This was taken at 1122 King Road. It was posted just before the murders that night. Dylan's now 21. She's no longer at the University of Idaho. Her family says that she switched schools and she spent the past year pretty much as a recluse, staying at home, staying out of the public eye. Um, Her family says she's actually suffering from quite a bit of survivor's guilt. This year, it looks like Dylan uh, dared to be a little bit normal, if only for a night. She emerged uh, from her self-imposed exile with some friends on Halloween. Thank God for that, right? Thank God. Kids getting out. Some new pictures posted on social media show her at a Halloween party in a costume. She's enjoying herself with some of her pals. But because the online world is full of trolls, some have decided to take pot shots at Dylan Mortensen. Because how dare she try to regain any of the actual life that she's lost, right? Let's get Caitlin Becker in here. She's a senior reporter with the Daily Mail. What is that? First of all, I just can't believe I'm even telling this story, Caitlin, but what's some of the um, what's some of that awful reaction been to Dylan daring to just be alive again with her friends? Actually, that really is what the reaction is. How dare her? It is outrage that she would go out and have drinks and smile and pose with her friends, which is so, I don't know, beyond the pale for me and I think for you as well because not only is she brave enough to go back out there and kind of be a regular 21-year-old college student again, we know that she transferred schools, but in these photos that we're seeing right here with her sorority sisters, 
She went back to the University of Idaho to go to a sorority event, even though she doesn't go to the school anymore. That's bravery. Mm. She almost died that night. She lost her friends that night. She came face to face with the killer that night. But there she is able to pull herself up and people online are just raking her over the coals for it. Awful. I mean, just despicable. What her family has had some details about her last year. What have they said it's been like? What's she been up to? I said it's been really, really hard for her. She basically didn't go out of the house for a while. Very, very early on in the beginning, we saw her out for a run one day. But other than that, her family said that she stays inside. She plays video games. She doesn't go out. She was getting some sort of trauma therapy through her spiritual community. But she really has kept a low profile. I think it's wonderful to see her out there kind of living her life again. It's the life we wish all four of those students could continue to live. Yeah, thank God she can smile at all. I mean, we should be all celebrating the fact that the poor kid um, could put a smile on a year after going through such trauma. So there's another roommate named Bethany Funk who has really been hard to track. Do you know anything about Bethany's last year and where she's been? Bethany has moved to a different state. She lives in Nevada. She keeps a very low profile. And I guess we can see for good reason, because looks what happens to these trauma victims when they dare to go and try to be a normal person again. Like I said, very low profile. Shortly after the murders, Bethany and Dylan went and got matching tattoos on their arm with the initial of each of the slain students surrounded by angel wings. So we know that, you know, they're both trying to cope. And at least in the beginning, they were leaning on each other for a fair amount. But she really has kept a low profile. And when they tried to kind of drag her out into court, Koberger's team wanted her to come and testify at a preliminary hearing that never happened. Her lawyers fought it tooth and nail because they did not want to put her through that. Well, I hope these two are going to be okay because they will... Mark my word, they will be called as witnesses at the trial if there is a trial. You never know. It could be a plea, but they will. And that will be a, a trauma all over again. Hey, Caitlin Becker, thank you for this. Really appreciate it. Good to see you. Thanks, Ashley. Still to come, uh, she stabbed her boyfriend 108 times. And today she faced a jury to explain why, hoping that they might actually give her a break. It's been called the reefer madness trial because the woman accused says she was too high on pot to be responsible. But did she actually try to blame the victim today? That victim's father was in the courtroom and he is live with me next for an exclusive interview. really big day today in the reefer madness trial the defense just rested actually and closings are set for thursday but the defendant herself took the stand and shared with the jury her version of how and why she stabbed her boyfriend 108 times after getting uh, way too high from a couple of bong hits she told it to the police she told it to the experts but today brings Bacher told it to the jury and it took her over three hours to do so She says that she should not be held responsible because she was in, quote, a cannabis-induced psychosis. But despite her altered state, um, she seemed to remember a lot from that night. She said that after her final bong hit, she felt like she might throw up, so she uh, lay herself down on the couch and began to hallucinate. Said that she thought she was dead, saw her own dead body from above, heard voices of paramedics trying to save her, and saw her mother crying with grief. Of course, none of that was actually happening. 
Um, but she testified that the voices were telling her the only way to bring herself back uh, from the dead was to, to kill her boyfriend, Chad Omelia. She said she remembers picking up the knife and stabbing him once, and then everything went black. Spacher says that she doesn't remember anything else until the police came in and tased her, which she says acted like a defibrillator, shocking her back to life. So, to repeat, Spacher claimed that she blacked out for all but one of the 108 times that she stabbed Chad Omelia. And she stabbed her dog, and then she stabbed herself, too. And frankly, the prosecutors bought into this enough to drop her original charge from murder to involuntary manslaughter. Since cameras were not allowed into the court, we were very thankful to Tony Biasotti with the Ventura County Star who acted as our eyes and ears for that testimony. But you can only imagine what this testimony was like for Chad's family and Chad's father, Sean O'Melia, who is live with me now. Mr. O'Melia, thank you for being on. And again, I, I, I am so sorry that you're having to not only go through this, the loss of your son, but then also the testimony today can't imagine what it's like to be in your shoes. What was that like, listening to Ms. Bacher and what she had to say in court? Well, I'll tell you this, Ashley. Again, thank you for having me. It's, the whole trial has been exhausting for, for me and my family. It's very difficult when, again, when you have heard and read all, heard the evidence, read all the statements, and then the individual who committed the act, committed the crime, wants to take absolutely no responsibility for their actions. Um, it, it was hard. It was very difficult to listen to this. It, at times, you know, I, I, but I will say this. I think her attorneys did her a tremendous disservice by putting her on the stand because there has been an individual that they have portrayed as her and today what was seen was somebody different. And it wasn't just in her behavior and in what she said. There was a lot of text messages, text messages that came out prior to her even meeting my son that demonstrated uh, a behavior of alcohol use, large consumption. Uh, she had missed some work because of it. You know, it's... The, the truth kind of rolls out, and it has rolled out. And the, those text messages did also reveal with those people prior to meeting my son, there was some marijuana use. The friends used the marijuana. Uh, her attorneys have been talking about oils and wax that were never found at the scene. But in some of those text messages, they were she was communicating with her friends about the edibles and they were saying, you can put the oil on ice cream and eat it. So, um, and then there was a period where she started speaking and was asked about my son. And, and she said, well, he was a nice guy. He was easy to be around. He was funny. But then when it came time to talk about the bong loads, um, she claimed to be intimidated by him and... None of this information was in any of her prior statements. It's just stuff that's, you know, she's speaking about today. And, you know, sometimes juries get angry if um, a, a murder defendant starts to point the blame towards a victim or if they, if they perceive it that way. Mr. Amelia, did you get a chance to really get a read on this jury? I mean, sometimes they, 
They tend to look over to family members of victims and really sympathize. Are you getting that feeling at all from this jury? You know, I think they're doing a good job of paying attention. I, I wouldn't say I would be somebody that could read a jury or read the jury. But given what they've heard, they've heard that somebody has stabbed somebody 108 times. And today was her opportunity to show the jury that she had some form of remorse for her actions. And it was really clear that in her testimony that everything was about her, me, me, me. I can't count how many times I heard her say me. Now, I realize this is not good for her or her family either, but there is a victim here, and she is not the victim. Right. The, the victim's name is, is Chad O'Melia, your son. Um, Sean, thank you so much for being on tonight. I would love to reconnect with you as this trial comes to a close, possibly even at the end of this week, and I, um, and I am praying for justice for you and your family. Thank you, and I, I appreciate what you're doing, Ashley, trying to bring some... Um, attention to marijuana and and the strains of marijuana that are coming out, they need to be regulated. Um, in this case, it wasn't a very high potency marijuana. And there, what I did learn here, there are three elements to the situation: the marijuana, the vessel that's used, the bong, and the person. Now, the it seems to be the person is the issue here. But thank you, and yes. I'll be back when you have me back. We appreciate that, and we will continue to, um, to, to shine a light on that as well. Sean O'Melia joining us live tonight, and uh, we'll continue to update the story as well. Coming up in a moment, a stolen forklift, an unlikely thief, and a police chase like you have never seen before. Let me give you a hint. It started at a middle school. What's next? What do you get when you cross a 12-year-old, a middle school construction zone, and a forklift with the keys still in it? You get a high-speed, no, slow-speed chase that is, well, here's the POV of the cops with a 12-year-old behind the wheel. Let's just turn up the volume and listen to this one. Please make a note of the, the cars that are being swiped as he goes by. No traffic, no pedestrians. Oof. If you're counting, sideswiping 10 of those cars, this chase went on for uh, 30 minutes with the local police and 30 minutes after that with the sheriff, but it did come to an end. The kid was safe. The kid is now being held in juvie. The investigation is continuing, but 12-year-old forklift, Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, 20 miles an hour. That was the extent of the high-speed chase. Thanks for being here, everybody. See you tomorrow. Cuomo's next.